and um, welcome to this episode of Better Off Red. My name is Pip Adam, and um, yeah, this is episode 78, um, so that makes it the sixth in our 10-part sound series, where I talk to writers and artists about their work in relation to sounds they have chosen. So in this episode, I talk to Carl Shooker and Simon Sweetman, and um, they have both chosen songs. Um, Carl has chosen a particular version of the song Work by Lou Reed and John Cale. And you can, there's a YouTube link to that on our website, which is better-red.com. And you can listen to it there. And Simon has chosen the song Whisper by Chanel Fenster. Um, and there's also a link to that song on our website, better-red.com. Woo! Um... Uh, yeah, we had an amazing chat. It was incredible. I really enjoyed it. Um, quite a few of these conversations are sort of um, mentioning and sort of dropping in songs and music and stuff like that. So I've started a Spotify um, playlist, um, which is called Better Off Red Sound Series, because I am... Yeah, I lack imagination. But there's a link to that on our website as well, and you can listen to that. Maybe you have always wondered what it would be like to have a playlist where there is Slint and also um, Joni Mitchell singing a song with Billy Idol. Um, and also Ongo Boingo now. Um, so yeah, um, that playlist, I'll keep adding to that as the series goes on. Um, but yeah, if, if someone mentions a song and you're interested in hearing it, that's probably where it'll be. Um, at the end of this episode, I will be offering an exercise for you to complete. Um, just a reminder that we are hoping to put together a showcase of some of these exercises as the last episode um, of this series. So yeah, send them in. We would love to have them. Um, you can email them to betterredNZ at gmail.com um, and there are other links on the website of how to do that. Um, yeah. I am extremely grateful again to Creative New Zealand, Toi Aotearoa, um, for the support in making this series um, for Better Off Red. I've really enjoyed it. Um, I really hope you enjoy this conversation with Carl and Simon. Thanks, heaps. We are recording. Sweet. Um, hello Simon and hello um, Carl. Hi. Hi. This is we've done this once already, so it's terribly awful for everyone. Thanks to my ineptitude. Um, I was wondering if we could start off by you both introducing yourselves. Would you be willing to start again, Carl? Oh, seriously, having to do that again? Yeah. Uh, okay. Sorry. I'm going to do it from memory, <laughs> like as we were discussing Jack Nicholson. Um, what did I say? Oh yeah, I wanted to preface all my remarks by saying that it is somewhat intimidating to be giving an interview in a podcast with two professional podcasters and interviewers. And the other part of that I want to say was that uh, Nabokov quote sprung to mind as I was driving over here. And it goes something like, um, I think like a genius, I write like an angel, but I speak like a child. <laughs> so I would just like to put that out there as my disclaimer before we begin. Brilliant. I think we can all, uh, words to live by. Simon, do you want to introduce yourself? Um, I'm still waiting to know what Carl does. Ah. Oh, yeah. He's a secret that. agent. I forgot that bit. Um, so what did I say? I see I write stuff. I write novels principally and almost exclusively. Now I don't really do any reviews anymore. And um, But I 
as part of my work, I write uh, editorials and articles for medical journals and the technical medical journals as part of my job, which is also fun. Awesome. That sounds so cool. Simon. Yeah, I'm Simon. Um, I don't know. I'm a writer, I suppose. That's what I just sort of have always said, just a writer. But um, I guess I've mostly written uh, music journalism, entertainment journalism and blog posts. And um, I have my own website called offthetracks.co.nz, which is really where everything is these days. And I really resent being called a professional um, particularly as a podcaster, who called you that? You did because everyone does. Everyone does oh, podcasts right. for free. I thought, unless you're Joe Rogan or Mark Maron. Um, yeah, and I, I mean, I've got a book of poems coming out very soon. So I guess, in some sense, that uh, both legitimises me as a writer and puts a huge shame on poetry as an industry. <laughs> and um, about eight years ago, I think I wrote a book of, I guess, non-fiction called On Song. It was about my favourite New Zealand songs. Yeah. Awesome, thank you. Um, I, d- I don't know if you mind this, but you two also know each other, eh? We do. Yeah, for a long time, actually. Well, yeah. pretty long yeah, time. Yeah, we probably have known each other longer than either of us have known you, I yeah. would guess. Yeah. 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 That's awesome. Good. D- that um, it shows, yeah, that's great. Um, <laughs> I was going to say it shows you're both amazing people. There you go. Which I know <laughs> well, we anyway. Each other, I know that we, objectively. So. Yeah, so you know. Now, both of you have chosen songs today, which is very interesting. And I guess, like, I wonder do you want to tell us what the song is and maybe just tell us a little bit about why that was a song you chose or I don't know, anything you want to tell us about the song? Do you want to start, Simon? Sure. I guess I felt um, that I had to choose a song because I've sort of uh, (laughs) been occupied by songs. It would have been a cop-out, and now I'm wishing maybe I didn't. It would have been a cop-out to to pick a sound that wasn't a song. And then I started thinking about, God, do I pick, like, my favourite song? What's the best song? All of this. And, you know, like anyone making any sort of list, you instantly think of all these other things you could have picked. So I picked a song called um, Whisper, by a band called Schnellfenster. It came out in 1988, and it's the first song on their first album called The Sound of Trees. And I I didn't pick it, I don't know if it's obscure, I didn't pick it to be obscure. Um, I picked it because it was a song that, I, when I heard it a couple of years after it came out, when I was a just a teenager, it was one of those songs where I really couldn't um, believe that I was hearing it. It really blew me away. I, I hadn't heard anything like it. And then I guess there's this lots of different threads of a backstory to it but basically it's Phil Judd who was in Split Ends it Mm. was his band and three quarters of the band were ex-members of Split Ends and the reason I came to hear it was my brother who's older was taught by an art teacher who had compared his work to Phil Judd's he had been Phil Judd's art teacher and Phil Judd was his greatest art student and he had said to my brother your work's similar to this guy Phil Judd do you know him and my brother said yeah yeah I love Split Ends and he said you need to hear his new work this is his brand new album and we thought it, and my brother used to always play music to me and I thought how cool is this and then I asked my mum what she thought of it and if she thought it was cool and my mum pulled out the all-time zinger in our house where she went Oh yeah, I like Philip. He's cool. I went to school with him. Oh my god! And, we, and so, so as a twelve, I think twelve, thirteen year old, this just blew my mind. Like, how could this happen? This guy was from Hawkes Bay, where I grew up, and I thought nothing good came from Hawkes Bay. Yeah. And so, in a way, this song came from Hawkes Bay. So it's been with me ever since. And 
yeah, every time I listen to it, it starts off the album. I love the album's evocative title, The Sound of Trees, and mm. yeah, I just get caught up in all of that as well as thinking it's a cool song. Yeah, it's a really cool song. And That's not awesome. in Hawke's Bay, mm. um, Carl. <laughs> Do you want to talk a little bit about the song you chose? Well, it's interesting because we, I think I've chosen a song as well. It's a song called Work um, by uh, John Cale and Lou Reed, and it's off their album Songs for Dreller. And Dreller being a portmanteau of uh, Cinderella and Dracula which was a nickname for Andy Warhol um, back in the day. And it's interesting because I chose a song for kind of similar reasons because it, it kind of popped into your world. 1990, this song mm, came out mm. and popped into my world when I was 16, I guess, and um, made a huge, huge impression on me because, you know, back then, as you guys probably remember, you had limited access, well, I certainly had limited access to new music or being exposed to stuff. It was like your older sister's friends who were nice to you because they wanted to, <laughs> you know, make inroads into your older sister. Or, um, or RTR Sounds. Mm, so mm. this song came on RTR Sounds. It's a live music video. And the actual recorded version is completely different. And the recorded version is just awful. It's like Lou's, Lou's delivering the same lyrics, but it's all kooky and it's, it's perked up and goofy and on this on this live version it's really it's it's down it's low and it's um abrasive there's a guitar solo about three quarters through mm. which is completely out of time and it's just um it's like sandpaper over the whole song and then it just re returns to this completely repetitive um two chord guitar piano thing as you're saying it's like the rhythm section of the whole song but really it's the lyrics which which are key for me mm, yeah and, and it really it's interesting that both of you have kind of chosen songs that are tangentially related to visual artists yeah it, it's quite interesting <laughs> yeah mm. and yeah i mean yeah anyway that's just no no it's a good point because when you said this thing was about sound and i just thought oh what song will i choose and then i thought hold on you know okay she clearly means there's a whole other thing going on here of what you can you know, experimental art and, you know, all, all kinds of approaches to this. And I just remember being on this um, fellowship with an experimental sound artist and um, I didn't have a great deal of respect for this person. Mm, mm. And it, it really keyed into this song because what she did was essentially go out around Tokyo and put a, a recorder on the ground and draw an ear on the ground and record it for several hours or something and then represent that at the workshop as her piece of work. And I was coming from the perspective of, um, you know, James Joyce was quite good, and Ulysses is a good piece of work, <laughs> and took a significant, you know, I'd suggest a significantly larger amount of actual real hard graft. And there's something about this song and something about the importance of work to Andy, as Lou tells it, that... Um, that kind of keys into that idea. So that was just a diversion. Mm, I really, I really like that idea of a diversion, and it kind of leads me to a question. I was wondering, you know, around craft. Really, um, this is a horrible thing to do. I, I know, I've never played a musical instrument. Mm. I played the recorder, um, <laughs> and it was terrible. But the Schnellfenster song at the start, there is something happening that feels so 1980s. Yeah. And I just wonder, do guitar you... Guitar synthesizers. 
Okay, can yeah. you talk a little bit about that sound? Because the yeah. minute I turned it on, and when you think about the um, Lou Reed John Cale song as well, you know, like it's it's paired right back. Whereas, mm. do, could you talk just a little oh. bit about guitar synthesizers? Yeah, well just because <laughs> <laughs> there's another thing I noticed in that song mm. is that every snare beat oh, yeah, is reverse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they, they rise up, they go shh, boom. Yeah, heavily yeah. produced um, drums, I guess. In a way, a lot of people were trying to chase whatever Brian Eno was doing to records. You right. know, I've been listening to a lot of Talking Heads, and you're going to ask me at the end of this because I love your podcast, particularly <laughs> this series. You're going to ask me what I'm listening to lately, and I'm going to say lots of Talking Heads and this great podcast about Talking Heads. And the guy says, <laughs> you know, uh, talks about. Um, how cool their cover of Al Green's Take Me to the River is because the drums are so brilliantly compressed. Mm, and I think, mm. and that was, what, 1978. So mm. I think that that had a big influence right through the 80s. There was, I don't know, for me, Schnell Fenster, I wanted to kind of own them for myself. And I remember playing the record, as you do when you discover something, especially back then when you maybe were the only person in your street or in your town to know about it. I remember playing vividly playing the Schnell Fenster album in my car at university to a friend who was a musician and saying, what do you think of this? And he said, it's really cool, I really like it. Um, it sounds quite a bit like Oingo Boingo. And I said, no, it doesn't. And then I went away <laughs> and listened to Oingo Boingo. who um, Sulking. Well, but Danny Elfman, the great film composer, that was his band. And I was like, fuck, he's right. It does right. sound heaps like, like... And I love them as well, but I... I, ha I remember having that reaction where I, I'm aware I'm not answering your question, but I'm getting to it. And I guess Oingo Boingo were that, it was that same thing where Danny Elfman's a guitarist, but he thought so musically, he brought in the, the guitar synths and the keyboard synths. There was, in Chanel Fenster, there were two guitarists. Um, there was Phil, Phil Judd, and an Australian guitar player called Michael Denelson, who um, basically is a, a, a long-running session player. And, uh, and he did some really, he did really most of the synth work, keyboard synths and guitar synths on that. It was just a sound that people were chasing. Mm. I mean, mm. I, I, I think you think you think about the 80s and you think about your Netflix queue now and all those nostalgia <laughs> documentaries about video games and things. That was a big influence. The, the video game sound was everywhere and music was actually trying to chase after that. Music was mm. trying to glom onto, as I say, idea, again, visual arts, ideas people like Brian Eno were bringing mm. to it. Mm. But it is a, it's such an, don't you think it's such an, especially for back then, that song's such an album starting song. Yeah, you know, yeah. you, it's the start of a journey. Like yeah. it really feels like, whereas, I mean, the song Carl picked, and I'm so glad he picked it because we, we had a tiny little chin wag about it and, and, and he knows that I love that song and that album too and I could have just about chosen mm. uh, that song and album but that doesn't feel like the song that starts that album off at all it, no. it feels like it, it's somewhere in the middle which it is yeah, yeah. but Whisper is the and the, 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 the combination of those synths and those drums that set it off the big sort of tribal intro. Mm. But it's yeah. weird I mean the irony in your story is that the song that starts off songs for Drella is small town yeah you know and what, what can you do with a small town you can get out yeah that's but like it's very, small town is very, um, I always think of that as being like such a great like opening track of like a musical. Yeah. You know, which oh, is, yeah, yeah. So much know, loose stuff stage, is like musical. A stage musical. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Which I think is really, I don't know, like this is something we've talked a little bit in the podcast, but this idea of how we're consuming music now. Like I was thinking... Um, I this is I'm just this is just all embarrassing for me. Um, I understand that Lou Reed and John Cale were in Velvet Underground. 
Yes. Okay, all right, thank you. Phew. Okay, <laughs> I will carry on with my question. Um, I'm just thinking of that um, uh, Transformers just Lou Reed, though, eh? Mm-hmm. And David Bowie producing. Sweet. Yeah. Okay, I'm thinking about those albums that came out around that time and the way that that was how I consumed them was as an album, yeah. you know what I mean? And I'm thinking now we can sort of pick and choose and I'm wondering about that narrative arc in that album. I just wonder if you've... And in the song, you know, like the song is... Like work is... It's very driving, yeah. but I'm wondering... And it sort of tells a story through the lyrics, but I'm wondering about how the music and the lyrics work together in some kind of... Do you have any thoughts yeah. on that? No, I do. I mean, I, about the song album thing, maybe not so much, but in, in terms of like the way Lou does... I was listening to Bowie talking about Lou and how he does lyrics, and he just... So he said, look, I'm way more Baroque and, and Lou just never wastes a word, which is all very true and it sounds better when Bowie says it. But um, there's some, he does these like leaps of cognition, mm, mm. Um, you know, between couplets or something. Everything's rhyming, everything's simple and clear and declarative, which I love. But then there's these sudden leaps in cognition and you, you, he, he just leaves this big open space. And this is where I think I was where I'm going in writing actually is like just way more trust in your listener and faith and confidence in your reader or your listener to just say, yeah, this is my dream. I'm dreaming it. Um, there are the flagpoles in this vista, you know, you imagine you do mm. it if mm. you want to. Mm. And rather than, um, you know, ladling it all on like, um, you know, some Lou that I could mention. <laughs> <laughs> I want to be a nerd and point out that, um, that John Cale and Lou Reed working together in 1990 and Phil Judd reconnecting with past members of Split Ends in 1988-1990, that that we didn't really plan that or think about that, but that's a really interesting thing, that they they needed the support of their ex-collaborators to help realise some of their best work. I mean, no disrespect to the swingers and the other Phil Judd stuff he's done that I really love, but... Schnell Fenster is my favourite, personally mm. my favourite stuff he created outside of that first Split Ends album. And for many people, Songs for Dreller is is, is really peak sol- uh, solo and in inverted commas Lou Reed. And he needed John Cale from the Velvet Underground. And, and nobody to, saw it coming with. because and they no one saw it coming reportedly hated each other. They hadn't worked together since 1968, give, give, or, um, give or take a couple of onstage appearances. Yeah. Like it was a long feud. Mm, mm. And they didn't really reconnect there was a quick velvet underground reunion on the back of that yeah that's and right. you know how that busted up basically yeah. um just brilliant artist ego they both fought over who was going to remember when mtv unplugged was a big thing yeah. <laughs> there is an there is somewhere in the can there is a velvet underground mtv unplugged that never aired because lou reed and john cale fought over who was going to be the producer <laughs> who was going to produce the album and so it just sits there to this day and I mean, this sort of stuff I find really interesting as well because, like, there's a re-entry at a different time mm. in technology as well. Mm. You know what I mean? Like when we talk about digital music, whereas I imagine a lot of that early stuff is analog. You know, like I don't know, like um, oh, that great Beastie Boys. You know, when they run the the actual tape around a chair so mm. that they can get the loop. You know, and I I just I I guess I've got two questions, and you guys can go where you want. One is I'm interested in this idea of collaboration because as writers we're sort of seen as solo kind of people, which I don't, I don't know, yeah, I don't know about that. And the second is this idea of re-entering with different technology, especially, like, mm. I'm thinking 
you know, like I think we've talked about the technology that some of your earlier work was made on compared with, you know, what you're using now. You're probably the same, you know, like, I mean, mm. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Have you, any thoughts on any of those no, things? I, I, yeah, no, I know exactly what you mean. And it's weird because you, it seems like it's way more relevant for, um, for a sound artist or a, a musician. But um, I was thinking about a particular moment in technology history when I was writing The Method Actors, and that was like... A, a long, long time in a big, big word document, mm. and I was doing it on a compact desktop, and so, and we had dial-up internet, so there were two sort of elements to that where I would download a long DJ Shadow track on LimeWire. Some of us may remember LimeWire, <laughs> and it was a 16 megabyte song. It was huge. That was so big, and that that took I think it took several days mm. for that to finally arrive, and so you had these. Um, these a limited finite number of tracks that you would listen to again and again and milk them for every little nuance and while you're writing a big book which you're immersed in for like 12 hours a day you're immersed in every nuance of the song that you're replaying and replaying while you're waiting for print preview to load on your document <laughs> so the document i would hit print preview and i'd have to go and do other things like sit back, take notes and think and dream because it would take often five minutes for print preview to load up. Mm. So I could imagine mm. it looking like a, a book. Oh God. Simon, any thoughts? That's just, just giving me the heebie-jeebies. All this is making me want to do is talk about Lou Reed. Yeah, well, good. I, mean, <laughs> I was just thinking, we can talk about anything we I want. I so should have picked a Lou Reed song, but, <laughs> but I was thinking like um, one thing I know happened in, in around that time is obviously the album that came out just before Drella was New York by Lou Reed, oh, 1989. Just before. Just before. They were, they were so close together. And then the album that comes out afterwards, after the Velvet Underground re reunion in 92, there's an album called Magic and Loss. And, mm -hmm. and they really are like a trilogy and people love finding trilogies in people's work, but they really are. And, and, it's, and it's Lou Reed, um, I think, arguably at his lyrical best, apart from the very early days. And it's him using a computer for the first time, actually sitting down and, and for mm. all three of those albums, basically writing the lyrics first. I know for New York, he wrote all of the lyrics first and you listen to it. And I started listening to New York a lot lately because I think they're about to put out an anniversary edition of it with a bunch of extra tracks. And I'm always a sucker for at least hearing that sort of stuff um, to begin with. But yeah, he, I know that. And I think that happened with Drella as well. I just find that very interesting, you know, that, that I th I've been thinking a lot lately about um, most of my writing, like anyone, is on a computer, um, but I will occasionally sit and write poems uh, in a book mm -hmm. with a pen, mm -hmm. and then I take as long as you took to download a song off LimeWire, trying to decipher what I've, my, ha my own handwriting <laughs> actually. Like, no, seriously do. Um, but that makes for some interesting things because then I type it up and I think I actually go, I don't know what I was saying here. And mm. it becomes a great starting point to explore something else. Mm. And so I've started really embracing that. That's about as arty as I get, I think. The idea that um, I've essentially created fragments for myself because I can't decipher my own words but they're good little starting points mm. they're triggers for a story mm. yeah and I think this is really interesting as well like this you know like we've talked a little bit about this you know the democracy of writing versus some of the more expensive art forms you know and like yeah this thing where it's just a pen and paper and that um and 
you know, I sort of find that interesting as well when you take it over to the other side of listening, you know, being a listener. Like, I was thinking, I do remember the Schnell Fenster song, and I am sure that I probably heard it on a clock radio AM, you yeah. know, like, I probably yeah. heard yeah. it coming over one of the student radio stations or something like that. Um, I think I probably had a disc man with some not very good <laughs> yeah. headphones. Yeah. And I just, whereas listening to it this week when you've sent it, and, you know, I mean, imagine being able to just fire up YouTube and see a video. Yeah, I'm showing my age. But I'm just wondering, with the Schnell Fenster and with that, you know, are there things that we're hearing today that we might, do you know what I mean? Like, is there this archaeology happening where we're actually hearing these anew as the technology moves forward? I don't know. Like, Oh, that's such a complicated question. Mm. Yeah. Or even, like, even, what is it to listen to it? I mean, I've been asking a lot of people this because, but what is it to listen to work now compared yeah. with when we first heard it? Or what is it to listen to these songs now? Or do you listen to them over the years? I don't know. I think... Um, that's a really good question. And I think the usual answer is, you know, back in the day when we had RTR sounds, we had these limited, you know, nodes and hubs where we got out, got information from. Um, we curated stuff, we became way more, more tribal. I think everybody would sort of agree on these kinds of things. Like we were way more tribal and what you listened to defined who you were in relation to other people because they didn't have exposure and we had, you know, C-mailed enemy that arrived three months late, so we were off <laughs> what was hot by three months every time. But, like, apropos that, um, I, in my first year of university, I heard Animal Nitrate, the suede track, like, when it first came out, 1992, and it was on student radio, and, you know, just, I, like, stopped. I remember stopping and going, what the hell is that? And that is me, that is me there, and, and just going to the radio... And then it finished, and I'm like, I, d I don't know what to do about that. So I, I, speaking about technology, I had my double cassette deck, and I put a tape in, and I set it on record and pause, and I left the radio on all the time. <laughs> and then it would come on, the song came on eventually. You like your butterfly net out. Four yeah. days, exactly. <laughs> and then you run across and you catch the butterfly, yeah. and you record that song, and, and it's, it, because the tape deck's wrong, it's playing too fast. <laughs> So when you hear the recorded version, it's like, it's really slow. <laughs> so you have these unique, there's something I wanted to talk about in other spaces as well, is like how, for me as a writer, these songs, like I really hate seeing them live sometimes, mm. or, or seeing the Lou Reed recorded version was different from the live one, because it's that, that version, that moment, that was the song for the, for the, you know, what was going on in my brain, which was the first part of the next book kind of thing, the dream that I was building. This was all part of this dream and a different version that's like, no, no, I'm afraid you've got that completely wrong, sir. And I know it's your song, but it's not anymore. Man. That doesn't answer your question. No, but, but it's kind of mind-blowing. Simon. Um, oh, I, I was going to talk about something else, but then Good. I just started thinking about Lou Reed again. Because <laughs> I was just going to say he's the classic example of someone that was everything he did live was so completely different on the mm. record and it was a constant source of frustration and and as much as I love the New York album my introduction to that was buying a video cassette tape of of the New York album performed live mm -hmm. and and I and you can watch that now on YouTube they never released that on any streaming service or even on DVD actually but someone has uploaded the whole thing to YouTube and I I still go back and watch that it's 
preferable to me to the album and I love the album but those versions are different and I sort of stick with that and yeah I just sort of find that that sort of stuff is is interesting and he's a great example of that but what I was I was going to talk about um you know if I could have been really if if I thought this would have worked what I was going to do is try and record for you one of my old records that has a scratch in it because mm. I love listening to, mm. um, you know, growing up listening to records and then rediscovering them. There are some of my favourite songs. I'm disappointed when I hear them without the scratch. Yeah. Do you have that? Because yeah. I've, I've written about that a couple of times and, and I kind of obsess over that. So there's a Paul Simon album called um, One Trick Pony and the second song on it is called That's Why God Made the Movies. And I always found that to be, as a little kid, and still, but as a little kid, I found that to be such a fascinating. It's one of his great story songs where it's got all this evocative storytelling. But you're also thinking, what the fuck is he on about? Like, it, he really leaves you hanging um, with, with, I guess he's very good at doing that. And it's that. because you skipped a whole group. Yeah, the record was yeah well, well, that's exactly it. As when I finally, you know, the, that's it. As the version I hear has the skip in it. And when I, this was, I, this is another thing is that yeah, it took me ages to locate a copy of that on CD because mm. and, and, it just was not around. And I think I ordered it from Germany or something. And I sort of like returned home like a hunter-gatherer to hand it to the family because this was one of the, the few albums we all agreed on. And I remember giving it to my parents, you know, and for Christmas or something, thinking I'd, I'd done an amazing job. And they were like, cool, chucked it in the pile. And I sat and listened to it and went, oh, no, it's not the same. Well, I was gutted that yeah. it didn't didn't scratch out this one line that I still hear that jump every time I hear it. Wow. And, I, and I've got, actually, there's a Lou Reed record, Mistrial, which um, I have the same experience with. And I, so I still have the, the vinyl copies that were the fa- in the family household growing up, and I kind of, like, treasure, treasure that aspect of it, which mm. is quite strange. And now, of course, you get people replicating that. You get people manufacturing yeah. scratches and jumps and ticks and pops. But also what you've got there in the lyrics is you go from like a Bowie-style cut-up mm. where you've given all this freedom and space to dream the connection and then it's all spelled out for you and it's dead. Mm. Paul Simon does like to spell things out. Just <laughs> oh, does he? He's a good lyricist, sorry. No, but he, he is and he isn't, isn't he? Like yeah. I, I remember being really excited about... Um, and this is a different topic, but I remember being really excited about his collected lyrics coming out, and I thought it was terrible. Mm. I read them and went, "These don't work at all. They're fucking nonsense." Isn't but then you listen it? to the records, and the, mm. and they, they really work well in the songs. Isn't there some joke? Like if you don't listen to the chorus, like every oh, I can't remember. I just remember someone saying something about Paul Simon. Like there's a way of he becomes a lyrical genius, but I can't remember how it is. Hey. What I'm really interested in, where we're starting to sort of move into, which I think is really interesting, is this idea of um, personal experience with music and different versions Mm. of songs. And I want to slip absolutely, um, you know, blatantly into writing about music. Mm. Like, what, especially Carl, what does it mean to put a particular song in a book? Like, you know, like... um, yeah, what, what does that mean? And, you know, perhaps what did it mean when Method Actors came out compared with what it means now or, yeah, anything around that? And do you mean lyrics or are we talking just song titles? Both, I think. You know, like, I mean, I, I you know, like if someone is, you know, listening to something and yeah. you name that or if, you know what I mean? Like, or if um, there's a lyric in there. That's a really interesting question. And I think... Um, 
from the writer's perspective, I mean, three quarters of my books have been really musically informed. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was just thinking about in the method actors, like you know, I was in such a sort of state of psychosis, basically. <laughs> That um, I'd be, I'd put down two different song titles because that's free to do, mm. and it'll be like to me that evokes an entire atmosphere and a dream, and I know you're with me in this dream, and you know I look back at it ten years later, and I kind of go like, they're just kind of sitting there, they're not doing any work. That being said, um, I got David Bowie gave me permission to use the lyrics to China Girl and the Method Actors, and I, I, because I did, I wrote this whole scene. It wasn't something you could pull out. You know, it wasn't mm-hmm. cleanly extricable, and it was it was all spaced out, and there was like writing between each of the lines, and it was a whole scene. It was a big deal, and I just thought I'm going to double down on this and see what happens. Mm. And then I approached him um, through his publicist and so forth, and I thought this is going to be, you know, this is going to be he's going to ask for twenty thousand dollars or something, and I got it for two hundred fifty US dollars. That's like what a bargain. The words to China Girl, but. Um, you know, as a reader, I guess you you have such a deep and intimate relationship with a song on your own that you're you're seeing an alien consciousness deploy it, aren't mm, you? Mm. Like um, Simon and the Schnell Fenster song. So I was I put that on when I saw you, it was mm. on your list, and I was like, uh, I don't really of all the stuff that Simon's into and knows about. I, it was quite surprising to me. Mm. But then you just don't know. You don't know what. An alien consciousness has dreamed the whole world around a song. Mm. And, you know, that for me is, yeah, the song, it actually, it evokes the world for you as a writer and helps you along and maybe it alienates other consciousnesses. Mm. I don't know. Mm. And Simon, like, I mean, you, I mean, both of you have done this, but I mean, you're in this interesting position sometimes where you're, recalling something ephemeral you know like if you're reviewing or I mean it's the same you know like when we write about a concert we went to or something like that but also there's that musicality that comes into your poetry as well I just wonder like yeah what what sort of activity what parts of your brains are firing when you're trying to put music into words Mm, I think I probably in some level, I'm probably like a really frustrated songwriter. Like yeah. I wish I learned a melodic instrument better, <laughs> you know, to a level where I could. I certainly tried to um, write some songs like most people um, that are interested in writing in music. At some point, you have a go, whether you whether you show anyone or tell anyone. I certainly had a go, and a couple of bands I were in, we did do a couple of songs that I did write the lyrics to, and I'm glad there were no camera phones or recordings or anything you know anything they just dead and buried basically maybe repurposed as as poems or, um so there is that and i think my, in a way that's probably started to really inform the poetry that i'm writing and also i'm really trying to explore you know um well no one will pay me to write an essay about music so i'll just write a poem that's basically an essay um about music i'm doing that a lot mm-hmm. um i try to get the rights to a Paul Simon song, funnily enough, for, for my book, and it was going to be 500 bucks for one line, yeah. um, wow. which isn't really very scalable when you're releasing poetry. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and it was funny because the, the, there was there's half a dozen poems in the collection that reference, um, refer, like directly quote from songs, and 
and they were all big hitters. It was like I was going to be asking for permission from Paul Simon, Cat Stevens, Tom Waits, Bob Dylan. So after we found out how much the Paul Simon one, it was like, I think we'll just, we'll just leave this all together. But, but the cool thing that happened in there, again, it's a bit like that, that fragment and rewriting from handwriting, was, was um, I sort of said to the publisher, I think I'm going to execute plan B first. I think I'm going to rewrite these. Uh, without the quotes and see if they can still exist because I felt like at least one of them had to have like your China Girl thing I felt like the one with the Bob Dylan um, lyric in it it had to have that Mm. to mean anything so I had to go out rewriting them and a couple of them it was very easy to paraphrase and just get rid of things that they were were very tangential and uh, tangential and and, um, others I felt like it hung on it, but actually, funnily enough, the Bob Dylan one I've I rewrote is probably the one I'm most pleased with, mm, mm. and it's taken on such a different tone that it was, I think, the opening poem in the book, or second, and it's now the second to last. So that was an interesting thing. I was like, I said, to the publisher said, I really like it. It's great it's staying in, and I said. I don't really care what happens with this stuff. You know, you've done a great ordering system and I'm happy with it, but I think that one needs to... I can't really articulate it. It just needs to go near the back now, Mm. which isn't because it's not as good. If anything, it's because it's almost better. So that that became an interesting process. So I kind of had done my homework first and rewritten them all. So it was sort of, you know, it didn't really matter how much it was going to cost. We sort of had plan B executed, which was interesting. But... um. Yeah, I just kind of, I, I don't know, I'm just very driven by um, music in general. It's always been on since I got turned on to it at about the age of four, I think, mm-hmm. is when I started really thinking about what songs were on and albums were on. Parents used to play records a lot. And so it's really the trigger that sparks everything. Mm. And then for me, spending nine, nearly nine years having to write about music every day, five days a week, and coming up with the topic was was really both blessing and curse, of course. But it meant you could do interesting things. Like like Carl sent me a nice note recently saying that he enjoyed a thing I wrote about um, "Don't Give Up," the Peter Gabriel song, which was actually just something I repurposed and sent back out into the world. I probably wrote it five or six years ago. But what a great luxury to just go, I love this song. I know a little bit about it, and I love it. I'm going to combine those two things. I'm going to give you a little bit of the history and the backstory to it because to me it was profoundly interesting that he actually wrote that song with Dolly Parton in mind yeah. mm-hmm. to do the duet and she for whatever reason didn't do it so it was kind of like oh who can I get oh, I'll get Kate Bush I know her we've worked together before she's quite good <laughs> and you know it's like man <laughs> for a lot of people she's the reason to listen to that song yeah. I think that's a cool story but I also wanted to bring in you know some of my thoughts and feelings around that song and and, and again that thing of like how have I reconnected with that as mm. time's gone on mm-hmm. yeah so I just for me it's like it's been the ultimate cure for writer's block, really. It's like put the put the radio on um, now. Scroll on my phone, put, drop the needle, whatever it is, whatever, whatever, however you access it. It's kind of like I used to have days where with the blog for stuff, I really have nothing to write about. So it was you know a case of standing and looking through a CD collection. And that changed in the course of doing that blog, actually, because mm. I started doing the blog in late 2007 and did it till early 2016. So my ways of collecting and dealing with music changed in the lifetime of that blog. So that was kind of interesting. Yeah. Man, it's incredible, eh? Dare I talk about the musicality of prose, Carl? 
Am I allowed to talk about beauty and prose? Because I just, yeah. this idea of rhythm yeah. um, seems to tie into balance, seems to tie into, and I, that's how I think I work around a novel, is mm. spatially and rhythmically, and yeah. yeah, I don't know. Have you got thoughts about words that sound nice together or rhythms of words or rhythms of chapters. I mean, it's interesting thinking about um, a mistake versus, you know, like a, a slim book versus, a, you know, like even something like three novellas for a novel, that kind of, yeah. Have you got any thoughts on that? Um, yeah, no, I remember you saying something like years ago about, like, I remember it was a tweet. It was just about a Billy Bragg song. And you were like, this is what all my work aspires to, <laughs> to sound like, <laughs> something like that. And I was listening to the song, I was going like, oh, I don't know about <laughs> <laughs> but okay, you like the song, that's cool. Um, what's the answer to this? Yeah, I mean, I think if just if we use like musical analogies, um, like you do a book that for me was one part, the Holy Bible, the Manic Street Preachers, mm. brutal post-punk, um, and then and the other half was completely Baroque, you know, Dogman Star suede, and you know, with a hefty dose of Scott Walker. Um, so th those are your sort of pole stars to, to sail by in your prose. So your prose has, um, it, it's going to be multi-clause, it's going to be descriptive. You're going to say, um, you know, the window did this and it did that. And through the window, you would find this character down in the alley doing this. You know, you'd finally get to the point because you've done all that Pinchonian or, um, you know, Joycean kind of stuff because that's, that's where you're at and what you're into at that time. And then you change, and and then you you get into that sort of maybe that more post-punk to be to use that analogy as as you go. Actually, no, this is this is like I'm going to refine everything down. I lose everything single adjective until you know when that adjective actually arrives, it's going to blow your mind mm. because there's something significant happening, or you're um, or you're loading it up and you're leaving the significance in somewhere. It becomes a diversionary tactic. You can you can use that that um, beautiful writing to to single out something that you wouldn't have singled out before, rather than every goddamn thing. Mm. So, and in terms of musicality, I mean, I think with with the last book, I was definitely I was going for like heightened awkwardness. I was mm. determined that it would be a New Zealand novel, mm. and I wanted it to be awkward. And I was listening to a Sarah Mary Chadwick um, track. It's called You Know What, and I think you know it. Mm. And she's from Tamaranui, and she's based in Melbourne now, and she has this, like, this New Zealand oh, accent, which is unashamedly, <laughs> she's so broad. And and this song was playing as I was driving home. I was just over there, and, and I was, you know, in that... I wanted to talk about this a bit later, but in that Protestant agony of, like... I hate my book, I hate my work, I hate myself, I don't know anything, I don't know what to do with anything. Um, actually, I'm happy, because this is what, you know, mm, mm, mm. you know, Sisyphus was happy, as Camus saw. And, and then I'm listening to this song, and I was like, Jesus Christ, that's awful. That's so terrible. Oh, my God, this is so... I'm blushing in the car on my own, listening to this track. And then, you know, I'm moving my hands side to side, and I'm driving a little bit long, and then I'll just turn that up a wee bit. Yeah. <laughs> I'll just turn that up a wee bit. 
and then I just turn it up a little bit, and then, oh my God, it just enters sublimity, subliminal sub, sublimeness. And, and the, you know, there is, there's an aesthetic in the beauty of prose, isn't it? You know, you know about this, like withholding, withholding and withholding, withholding and then delivering. And even if you deliver something that's small, it's like, you know, it's like they used to say in East Germany, rip it like a parcel from the West. You know, it's like you get this tiny thing, but it's worth so much. Mm. You know, and I got, I got more interested in miniatures, I think. Because mm. I think this, I mean, I don't know, like... <laughs> I know when you use that word analogy, I always think maybe I'm just, you know, completely, um, what's the word? Yeah, like that's all I've ever been talking about is analogies. But I do feel like music and sound has this new way in often for me and it helps me to reinvent. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like it just feels like, um, yeah, it just feels like it sort of offers a new kind of approach to language, even when it's not. You know, it's got no lyrics, that kind of thing. I have to... I, I am in love with percussion and always have been, so I can't let you, you go, Simon, without <laughs> talking to you about percussion. And I wonder, you know, going back to that Schnell Fenster song, but also going back to work where I might... Again, I don't know anything about music, but it seems that all the percussion in the Lou Reed, um, John Cale song comes from keyboards mm, and yeah. guitar you know and I'm just wondering about I don't know anything about percussion like why do you think you chose percussion um yeah I don't really know why I do I guess I just rhythm you know drums were just always there for me as an idea in songs but I became very interested in notice, noticing the absence of them mm. or or them being generated by something else yeah, like, like yeah. that I mean songs for Driller it's only the two of them on the whole album isn't mm. it like mm. that's it and so John Cale also of course plays the viola so you get some lovely violin cello and in between textural both textural scraping stuff as well as melody but yeah he's, he's, he's he was always a, has always been a very percussive piano player so I love Seeking things like that out, and when I got really into jazz, um, obviously drumming is a big part of it. But then I started listening to drummerless trios, things like you know piano, bass, and guitar, and you that's or, or solo jazz guitarists. And I guess as a teenager, imagining what I would do to help colour in that sound if I was playing, mm. I would fuck it up, of course, but that's, you know, I, I would think that, but also just appreciating the decisions around why it was not there. Mm. And, and I guess it, it, there is a analogy <laughs> to, to pairing back writing. Like, I'm most interested now in drummers that are very subtle, very understated, um, not thought of as technically... Uh, amazing. My current favourite is Chris France, the drummer from Talking Heads. Mm. Thinking about what an underrated drummer he is because he he sort of devised a lot of the percussion in that stuff. There's a lot of African influenced percussion, and and um, if he didn't play it, he sort of thought it up and chose the players, and then kept his lines very simple mm. around that. Mm. I'm always into like um, one of my favourite things too is is drummers who play the drum kit like a percussionist and I think yeah. I think one of the great ones is Ringo Starr mm, mm. Um, not just all his colouring and signature fills but I keep listening to um, Hey Jude and thinking like man the he plays the tambourine on that like it's a ride cymbal 
it's it's the steady thing in that song you go mm. back so i think i mean you can do this with any instrument but for me going back and listening to percussion or drums is a, a and just listening to that is a really fun and of course Schnell Fenster, the drummer in Schnell Fenster was, is Noel Crom- or was mm, Noel mm. Crombie, who is a self-taught percussionist in Split Ends and only picked up the drum kit um, sort of late in Split Ends when they kind of ran out of drummers. He went, oh, I'll have a go. <laughs> so he played on the last couple of records. And to a lot of people, he's technically not very good. But again, his whole thing is he's a visual artist. He's a, he does a lot of sound sculpt- sculpting now and sound, you know, sound art and installations. I really like him as a drum player because you can hear, again, to me, he's very similar to Chris France from Talking Mm. Heads. He's got that, um, he leaves little gaps. He plays very deceptively simple things. Get on a a kit, as I've started to do, and God, you live in the same street as me, maybe you've heard, but um, (laughs) I've started playing the drum kit again for the first time in a while, and trying to play those deceptively simple things is is really a nice challenge, yeah. (laughs) And it also occurs to me that, uh, the, I'm not a psychologist, but it feels like that's the first noises we make. Yeah. You know, like uh, the beat. Like it's for, not for some of us, that's melody. as far as we get. Yeah, yeah. yeah. totally. Yeah. What, what you may not know is I'm also a failed drummer. Are you? I did not know that. <laughs> yeah, I was going to bring that up. Holy shit! You're kidding. No. Um, so, yeah, I think I think a lot of your guests on this are you know sort of failed musicians or musicians who you know. Found they were better, better at, writers. Better at other that's things. That's what we yeah, decided to say. We needed something from the start. <laughs> so, you know, when in your teens, all you want to do is start a band, right? Mm, so yeah. um, what's the easiest thing to play? You know, one thought when one was dumb. Um, and the drums. And, you know, I had a friend who had this sick drum kit. So, you know, you, you pick up what's around, don't you? And um, so my little sad story is that I... Um, played drums in a couple of different bands and then you know tried to get better and better but didn't really get much better mm. and then we had a band where I started playing guitar and then my bass player soon became better at the guitar than than I did than I was and so I went back to the drums and bought this nice shiny drum kit and then I was 24 and I thought I, I was going to be a writer I got to sell the drum kit to live mm. this is the fork in the road mm. and drum and bass happened yep and I couldn't, I couldn't think, let alone do drum and bass. You know, mm. I would try and like do it in my head, like plan how I would drum it. And I was like, I can't do this. Mm. It's mm. like I'm over. Mm. This is the end of the road for me. So, hence writing. Oh, <laughs> I just love. Oh my god. Do you want to talk about Talking Heads? Like I was yeah. thinking, because when always, I think always, of it, <laughs> when I think it's about all over the blog. Uh, yeah. yeah. Oh my god. I when I think of drums and Talking Heads, I often think of. Um, I've forgotten her name completely. Tina uh, Weimer? Yeah, Tina Weimer. Yeah, yeah, bass player. Like, I don't know why, but I think it's because, yeah, I don't know. I'm thinking about that David Byrne concert as well with yeah. the carried percussion. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like, yeah, I mean, which would yeah. absolutely be impossible without modern microphones, yeah. really. Yeah. But, like, um, I think that we have the same podcast going on in our house, um, oh, yeah. the Talking Heads podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, I mean... The album by album, song by song yeah, one. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which has only just started. It's only halfway through their catalogue so yeah. it's quite easy for people to catch up with because it's only a finite it's a you know what 10 albums and yeah. they're up to about album number four yeah yeah because like the sorts of things I was thinking about like there is one question that I want to ask that I'm very nervous about asking because it's probably it just shows me up as a wanker but um I'm interested in this idea of cool do you know what I mean mm. like I know um 
as a writer, I'm often thinking, I think I said this to you in the email, you know, I'm often thinking, what would Laurie Anderson do? Or mm. what would, you know, like, you know, what what would these people, um, and it does often come down to David Byrne, I mm. think, you know, that, that mixture of um, laughing at yourself and being exceptionally yeah. serious and all those sorts of things are really interesting. And I'm just wondering about how this idea of cool, and I think especially with Lou Reed and, you know, those just seem like the epitome of cool mm. that Velvet Underground, like all the cool kids at my school listen to Velvet Underground. And I just wonder, I don't even know how to ask the question, but no, I'm just wondering about this idea of coolness and how it manifests in writing, I don't know. I think this is sort of a way into that question, but I was, um, I was thinking about work and I was thinking about you know, why it made such a big impression on me in 1990. And it was because up until then, like everything to do with Andy Warhol to me was um, decadent and mm, mm, and mm, you know mm. like too many uncool mm. because it was mm. it was all um, it was all flash and polish and mm. sell out and there was no substance. That was the point. You know, mm. The point of it was was now past the point for mm. me. You know, it's like I got it, but it was also it was redundant and empty once it was pulled out of it. So I was really against it. And then to hear the song where you hear that he's a Catholic and the ethic work ran through his bones and the most important thing is work. Um, there's one lyric I wanted to quote, if you'll permit me. I would love that. And we'll he says... It's going to cost plus GST. Oh, yeah. On that... No, I, I, I used a Beatles lyric in a book once. Mm. And you know how I got around it? I wrote, Yesterday, something, something seems so far away. And just left it at that. Nice. I'll probably, it might find me now, but that's a that's a trick for young players out there. If you want yeah, to, yeah, I've done a bit of, <laughs> I've definitely done a bit of creative uh, paraphrasing in this poetry book around that stuff. Yeah. that's an art, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, it's good fun. So anyway, this is the line. Um, Andy sat. This is Lou singing. Andy sat down to talk one day. He said, "Decide what you want. Do you want to expand your parameters or play the museums like some dilettante?" I fired him on the spot. He got red and he called me a rat. It was the worst word that he could think of, and I've never seen him like that. It's work. I thought he said it's just work. Which is not the Andy Warhol you immediately think of. No. Like this like this determination that you had to what is it? Um he asked how many songs did I write? I'd written zero, I lied and said ten. Mm. You won't be young forever. You should have written fifteen. It's work. The most important thing is work. You know, Andy Warhol, really? Yeah, yeah. And us too. You know, I spent years thinking that writers looked like writers and went yeah. to the places writers went. And and smoked and, and stood on corners. Smoked and stood on corners, yeah. It was quite wild. <laughs> but it's, any it's, any it's, thoughts? It's, yeah. Oh, it's, I, I think about that song a lot. And I, 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 I don't know if you've seen it, Pip, but I bored Carl with this several times. But my friend Matt Cooper, who's an artist, who, who's actually done the cover to my book, um, he gave me a painting years ago because I wrote an essay for him about about it for a catalogue that depicts that scene. It's Lou Reed and Andy and uh, Lou Reed and Andy Warhol, and it's Lou Reed saying all that matters is work, and Andy saying it's just work, and it's done in the style of a Spanish X photo, so it's got other text underneath it. Um, but I, I just always have thought about that song as being um, about you know if you've got the back catalogue, if you've got the track record of if you've got the productivity, eventually no one can deny you, mm. you know? Like, if you have built up this, and that's certainly something that ins has inspired me, like, I sort of, you know, maybe I'm just projecting my own 
attempts here, but I think like sooner or later, someone's going to say, well, whatever we think of, some of the stuff you've done, mm. there's so much there, you're so dedicated to it, that there must be some something of worth, otherwise but you wouldn't cool? have bothered. Is that cool? I would hope not. I would hope that it wasn't. So genius um, is cool. Yeah. Mm. It's, it's irrefutable. <laughs> sure. So the banana album. Yeah. You know, that... That's cool. That's cool forever. If nothing ever else came after it, that's. I think that's what I see in Dance Prone, the David Coventry mm. novel, mm, mm, which mm, stung mm. me in some ways because it's like that moment, like that that crowd, the kids who come to his concert. Have you read it? Yeah. I haven't. I'm looking forward to. You'll it. like Definitely. it, I think. Yeah, yeah. So the kids who come to that crowd, they're 16 and come to those bands. Their demands are so stratospherically high. And you remember, right? Like mm, mm, mm. The slightest 2% falling off in an artist when you're 16 and you're like, no, they're, they're over. Yeah, mm. yeah. They're dead to me forever. Mm, mm. Um, so cool and genius when, you know, when that moment happens, I think as you get older, maybe you justify it to yourself and you say, no, nah, it's more about the, you know, deliver the, you know, stay alive, survive, be, oh. be, um, longevity mm. you know and an improvement over time but does that really outweigh one single I've, stroke of genius i've always loved the um going down the sort of cracks in a person's catalog psyche mm. and yeah well that too but but you know wondering and i don't think i was in, i don't think i ever thought i was alone in this but i must say it was it was very validating to read um quest love's memoir which is fantastic Anyway, but in the intro, he talks about how his favourite Stevie Wonder album is Journey Through the Secret Life of Plants, which is the soundtrack Stevie Wonder did at the end of his hot hot period. He does the soundtrack, soundtrack to a TV documentary about plants. And most people just wrote it off and hated it. And he's like, I just wanted to get inside it. Mm. Wonder what the fuck he was doing. But mm. also I found there's some amazing stuff on there. And there's also... There are, you know, there are Stevie Wonder songs on there, but there's also this weird ambient instrumental stuff, and it's like, cool, he could do that too. The dude is a genius, and yeah, I've kind of like my fa one of my favourite um, things to do on my site at the moment is I've got a series I'm writing called um, "Shit That's Good Crap Albums I Love," yeah. Yeah. and I'm trying to find essentially, I'm thinking back about like usually it's usually it's an album. Sometimes they're one off. But usually it's an album that belongs to like a heritage artist, you know, someone like a Lou Reed or a Bob Dylan or a... Prince. Tom, yeah, Prince, Tom, Tom Waits, any of these sorts of people. Um, Joni Mitchell, great example, her 80s stuff, where it's like, what the fuck were they thinking? And why did they do this? And, and who tapped them on the shoulder and said, you need to add drum machines, you know, or whatever the fuck it was, yeah. we need to make you... And I love that, I think I love that sort of, that sort of failed attempt at coolness, because it's kind of like, you know... What the hell business did Joni Mitchell have doing a duet with Billy Idol? Yeah. Why did that fucking happen? <laughs> yeah. And it's a glorious hot mess to listen to. Like, it doesn't get better ever with, with age, but it gets funnier and more intriguing. Like, mm. you listen to it and go, what, whose idea was this? Like, it had to just be some idiot suit that was like, you guys are both on the same label. Let's put you together. Mm. He's just had a hit single. You haven't had one in ages. Let's put you together and see if that... And I, I, I just love exploring that sort of stuff. Mm. So, um, you know, I'm aware of I'm aware of Cool. I've heard of it. But <laughs> I've never deliberately... You know, I'm not, I'm not in the same supermarket as it. I've never deliberately stalked down the aisle and tried to find it. I'm way more yeah. interested in, in, the, in the failures. You know, yeah. my favourite... Um, 
I, you know, Beach Boys period at the moment is sort of the Kokomo era because yeah, it's like, what yeah. the fuck were they up to? And I love all aspects of the Beach Boys, but what were they doing then, you know? But <laughs> there's, cocaine there's a coolness to irony answer. as well, yeah. though, isn't there? And there's also a coolness to, like, like sort of blinding sincerity. Mm. Like, remember this, when this first Strokes album came out? Mm. That was like, you know, that was kind of when we met, actually. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah, totally. And that was like, um, when I first heard it, you just go, well, come on. Yeah. Come on, guys. Yeah. This is just such an act of mimicry and, yeah, yeah. and, you know, and straight up stealing. And then you hear it in a time in your life when, you know, we were having this golden year. It was, we were, I was doing the MA with Katie, Simon's partner, and, and it was like, you know, one of the best years of my life. Mm. And this song, this album became the soundtrack to it. Mm. So it became uh, a thing of purity and innocence and wonder. I remember, I remember fondly buying a 10-pack of um, blank CDs and burning you a copy of it exactly. <laughs> on, on my on my flatmates. I had to wait till my flatmate was out doing his gigs in his Irish band. We were both in Irish bands, <laughs> me and my flatmate. Has um, every New Zealander been in an Irish band? <laughs> we, were like, we were like those Starbucks on, cor- on oh, opposite corners no. competing. We were, in, we were in dueling Irish bands, and when he was out at his gigs... I would sneak into his room and use his CD burner and make mixtapes and copies of things for people. It's a good year. Hey, go. we're just about out of time. Mm. Right, now I get to ask you what you were listening to. What was the last song you listened to? I was listening to Tierra um, Whack Clones, which was um, recommended to me by Sinead Overby and was just this week in um, Lovecraft Country, which was quite nice. Oh. You're Talking Heads. I have been listening to loads of Talking Heads, but the last thing I listened to, and I've been playing it heaps, is um, is it WAP, Wet Ass Pussy by yeah, yeah, Cardi yeah, B yeah. and, um, and Megan The Stallion. I, I've actually been playing along to it on the drums Bang too. Track. Oh, it's so great. Because to me, uh, like, you know, a lot of people get, especially hip hop, you know, heads are getting all wound up about how bad it is. To me, it's kind of like um, pro wrestling, it's yeah. entertainment, it's, mm. you know, it isn't like proper sport. And that doesn't matter. There's a, le- you know, again, it's like there's a legitimacy to that. So I've actually been playing that a lot. I think that's fantastic. Excellent soundtrack for this strange time. <laughs> what yeah. about you, Carl? I'm not even going to go there because I've got a, I've got a daughter. Oh yeah. So um, I was listening to, and I know Simon appreciates this, Cliff Martinez's soundtrack to Too Old to Die Young, the Nicholas Winding Refn, mm, 13 nice. hour. Darius Conji does the cinematography. It's just absolutely astonishing. I've never been so hypnotized and drawn into it because you know nothing on tv like is like Catherine bray art films where you actually are just asked to sit there and and look at something and have your own dream mm. you know and and this this soundtrack is from barry manilow to um all these cliff martinez like these strange sort of giorgio moroder kind of tracks and he's a percussionist and drummer that's his training you know that right, eh? right. you know cliff he played um he played um, drums on um, a Captain Beefheart record, and he was in the um, Red Hot Chili Peppers for a bit. Well, all the geniuses <laughs> they can do, yeah, they, they can do it. Like they, yeah. they jump on the drums, they do a better job than the drummer. You know, yeah. mm-hmm. but he's a drummer by trade. Like, that yeah, so that's good. his thing. Thank you both so much. Pleasure. Yeah, what it was an fun. awesome conversation. Thank you very much. This is the exercise. That is um, me making a, I don't know what that is. Is it like trumpets heralding in the exercise? I have no idea. 
Anyway, so in this episode we talk a bit about writing about music and um, so what I was thinking is you might like to take a song you like and um, what I was thinking is that you could try to write or speak for a minute or 30 seconds um, about the song without using words from the song, so none of the lyrics and not the title and see what happens, how that song um, is described if we don't let ourselves use any of the words from that song or the lyrics from that song. So yeah, I hope you have fun with that. And again, you can send these in. Um, we are putting together a showcase of these for um, our last um, episode. But also, um, if you have other work that you'd like to submit, that'd be amazing as well. So yeah, um, I will. I'm available to chat about all of this as well. You can um, get hold of me on the email or you can talk to me on our website, better-red.com. So yeah, I hope you're having a good day and thank you so much. <laughs>